is that you've got to understand when you're working with these AI SaaS guys, you're not really building capability. You're, you're not quite, in many cases, necessarily making an investment in AI. It's not a bad thing. It doesn't make you bad, but you can't go to bed at night saying, oh, our data is in a better place. We're more capable with AI. Data, artificial intelligence, the metaverse, crypto and Web3, and quantum computing are just a few of the technology innovations that are changing the way we live, work, and experience the universe. I am your host, Ganesh Padmanabhan, and this is Stories in AI, a podcast where we explore the various facets of technologies like AI, its impact on individuals, organizations, and the society. You will hear from a variety of experts and practitioners, their personal stories, their best practices, and advice to put technology to work. I hope you enjoy this engaging conversations. Now, before we begin, a note about our sponsor. This episode is sponsored by Experian, whom you may know as the Consumer Credit Bureau, but they are at heart a data company. When you're buying a car or home, sending your kids to college, or borrowing to grow your business, Experian is most likely helping you behind the scenes. They unlock the power of data to make better decisions, get access to financial services, and to prevent crime, unlocking a whole world of opportunities for individuals and organizations. Find out more at Experian.com. Dan, welcome to Stories in AI. How are you today? I'm doing well, brother. Good to be able to catch up after a couple of years here. I know it's been a while and thank you so much for taking the time today. You've been flying around and traveling quite a bit. The summer has been a busy summer already for you. So really appreciate you taking the time. Before we get started and dive deep into AI and the industry and enterprise and stuff, why don't you start with your story? Uh, give us your background and what's your story? Sure. So uh, people know us or know my work here at Emerge best for sort of um, covering the ROI of AI in important sectors. So we're a market research and publishing firm at Emerge. We serve sort of bigger enterprises that are looking to uh, get a gauge on where they should invest their funds and what direction they should head in. And then we work with the vendors who want to be able to reach that enterprise audience, of course. We've got about a million and a half folks, listeners and readers uh, in a given year across Emerge. Um, but I didn't start off as a computer science guy, Ganesh. So I, you and I actually never went into this when we first met here. But I, uh, I went to graduate school for kind of the human correlate for machine learning, which which is skill acquisition and skill development, or, uh, oh, can you hear me okay, by the way? Yeah, yeah, I can. We, we can edit this if we need to. I can hear you fine. Go ahead. Yeah. Oh, sure. Okay, got it, got it. So, um, so yeah, so I, I went in for kind of the, the human correlate of, of machine learning, which is skill acquisition, skill development, or, or adult learning. Mm -hmm. So I went to University of Pennsylvania, positive psychology program there. I wanted to know, how can humans learn to learn faster? What's the neuroscience and cognitive science for right. skill acquisition? And by the time, so while I was there, this is 2011, I was getting tapped on the shoulders by, it was, it was actually business school people, but they were talking about what was happening in computer science. They're like, hey, you're doing all this adult learning. You know about machine learning? And this is 11 <laughs> years ago. So I was like, I don't really know about machine learning. And, and back then, UPenn was working with Google on determining sentiment from Twitter data and searches and other yep. kinds of interesting things. Very early NLP, right? And this is around the same time as ImageNet. And by yep. the time I graduated from UPenn, I was like, uh, wow, I might have gotten the wrong degree. And so I became pretty well convinced at that point back in 2011 that um, AI was going to be a very big deal and extremely transformative, not just in business, but 
frankly, for kind of humanity and the, the 30, 40 year time horizon, at least, at least is my belief. And uh, from there, I, I had other companies to grow and sell. I had a martial arts gym, which is how I paid for grad school. I never had a job. I just was training fighters. That's when my ears are all uh, messed up oh, here. I got were that, you that uh, jiu-jitsu? Were you Brazilian jiu-jitsu? Yeah. You got like pure Brazilian jiu-jitsu, Cauliflower man, ears, as they call it? Yeah. Yeah, cauliflower <laughs> ears, for sure. So many, many years fighting and training. That's what I was doing um, to pay for for you know, an overly expensive graduate degree uh, was, was training fighters. But um, after that, I grew and sold an e-commerce business kind of related to that industry. Um, but the whole time, uh, about two years after graduating school, I was like, I need to stay in touch with AI. So I was talking to obscure academics and people in the business world and yeah. initially just writing articles. Then eight or nine years ago, it turned into a podcast. And by the time I sold my e-commerce company, I said, great, I get to finally dive in full-blown into AI, which is what I wanted to do all along. And uh, yeah, fast forward. I mean, we've been lucky enough to give keynotes at United Nations headquarters and speak all over the world for the World Bank and really bring sort of a uh, trend and ROI focus to AI in, in a way that um, hopefully some of our listeners have, have found helpful, but uh, started off in a very strange path to be where I am today, I think. Um, no, it's actually a fascinating, fascinating background. In fact, the, your notion on thinking of a tie, you started learning about learning. One of the yes. biggest problems today in AI is we don't really still understand how humans learn. If we had, then we would be training neural nets a lot better because you know we're, we're modeling yeah. it around the, the same um, physiology, but we still don't understand you know, how, how this actually works. So I think it's a very valuable background that you have there. I, I, you know, well, it's so interesting you bring that up. I've been for probably half a decade, I've been telling myself once a month, oh, you got to sit, you got to sit down and carve out time to write a big, long piece about where the academic literature on skill acquisition intersects with ML, because there's actually human skill acquisition correlates to things like overfitting and underfitting for yep. specific training circumstances. Like, yep. like, that, that you could literally layer over each other. But to your point, it's definitely not a direct one-to-one, -one, right? No, but there is no. a lot of overlap that's massively fascinating. Um, but, you know, my business audience probably wouldn't like it that much. And so I just haven't found the time to do well, it. Well, you know, it's, it's, yeah. it's actually fascinating, all those lines of blurring. So g give us a view, Dan, on where yeah. what is the state of enterprise AI today? I mean, where is enterprise AI yeah. today? Well, uh Enterprise AI today is, I guess, you know, there's a short version that's somewhat optimistic, which is much better than it was four or five years ago. So, um, you know, uh, back in 2014, I would have said, what enterprise AI? Uh, and, and, you know, 2018, 2019, I would, have, I would have grimaced a lot. I'm still grimacing a lot, but I would say it's significantly farther along than it is today. So um, compared to, let's say, let's just use three years ago, compared to, let's say, three years ago, um, we see the proliferation of data science as a skill set and a respected skill set within the enterprise. We see that it's not as much um, hired and tucked into a dark corner as if its magic is somehow going to spread into the business, but actually is is interfacing with subject matter experts sometimes in ways that are somewhat meaningful. Sort of um, yeah. Yep. We're seeing very slowly and gradually, extremely painful, uh, data infrastructure get leveled up to the point where we can actually use what we have and, and put it into use. That said, um, and there's some industries that are farther along than others. So financial services broadly is going to be farther along than many others. There's firms like logistics and manufacturing that pound for pound for rev per revenue dollar, the number of deployed real solutions is you know going to be lower. But um, financial services, banking, or wealth management would be kind of top of the heap there. Banking, sure. insurance, 
life sciences, probably in that order. Manufacturing, there's a lot of dollars, but there's not a lot of, of maturity. So there's industries that are also pulling ahead. Beautiful. Love it. Great things. Um, we still see AI primarily playing at the surface. So what I mean by that is um, AI is today more of a topping on a pizza than it is sort of a baked in lasagna. So we're looking at existing ugly kludgy systems and for the most part figuring out is there a way to predictively make this into a dashboard, go from kind of BI to something more predictive, or some way to take the streams of data that we have now, ugly and gangly as they are, build some some additional potentially ugly, ugly and gangly thing that can maybe unlock, you know, a little bit of a new skill and a little bit of a new efficiency. Way better than zero deployments. Way better than zero deployments. Um, but but it is for the most part playing at the surface. When you and I talk a little bit about where things will go in the future, hopefully that'll change. Um, yep. So yeah, we've got some ROI now. We've got industries pulling ahead. Um, we've got skill sets and data maturity lifting, data data infrastructure sort of uh, be, being made better. But we're still seeing mostly popcorn projects and a lot of things dancing at the surface. We had a great phase of AI strategy. It was really an intellectual exercise. It wasn't very real in most enterprises. And we still see AI uh, uh, in isolated kludges for the most part. No, it's actually what a what an amazing you know short uh, compression of the complexity of the industry right now. So it's pretty amazing where you pulled it together. And it's interesting to note a few things that you said. Right, one is sure. like five years ago or four years ago. You know, even I look at it from I was running an AI company, uh, two different AI companies, and it was yep. easier to actually go in and say, "Hey, show a popcorn project, shiny object," and say. Here's how we can actually transform your business. Make that as a case to actually go get the bigger budget so we can actually deploy an AI strategy. That was the playbook. Every startup out there, that was a successful playbook. And it worked. Yeah, it worked yeah. for everybody. And a lot of our partners, a lot of our customers, it worked really well because they were struggling to show to their business, their board, the value yes. of it, right? So, yeah. so you know, I, I remember like uh, Wealth Management, one of the largest banks in, uh, in the UK, I remember going and showing them. They were like, how does AI really even come into play? And then we actually set up an elaborate demo powered with machine learning and stuff that shows them that you have an AI powered co-pilot for the wealth manager that allows them to actually give 100% personalized 360 view, um, you know, support for their highest net worth individuals, right? So it was like, and then you showed that how they can use that to scale across the, the, the mass affluent and, you know, kind of scales their business model and so forth. But it was needed, but that was what was needed. A lot of eye candy. So you can actually go and get the yeah. right to play the bigger game, right? I think we're past that. You know, anybody does doing that is not very successful. Um, I have so much to say on that. I want to let you finish though. Uh, <laughs> no, so so I think, you know, my point was, I think that from that to now, uh, um, we I think even the buyers, the customers, the industry has gotten a lot smarter. They kind of have yep. fallen flat, got hurt a lot. They're like, okay, they can kind of smell bullshit, mostly, you know, when, when they hear bullshit. But Still, there is a lot of work to be done. But the part that really fascinated me when you were talking about is what you just said, which is all a lot of the AI that's happening is still on the surface. And I think, you know, it just lays out the roadmap for the next 50 years for all these organizations to kind of look at, like, you can start doing all these pop cons, but if you're going to want to make fundamental changes and power and create AI as one of the parts of your operating system for the company, that's when you're going to start unlocking much returns, right? And unfortunately, outside of the big tech, you know, the Apples and the Facebooks of the world, we haven't really seen that we win to the fabric across the industry. 
No, brother, we haven't. Uh, and, and there's a lot of barriers to it. There's a lot of barriers. And, you know, we're going to get to talking about ROI and there's an unlimited amount to unpack here, but you're bringing up some very important points. Um, it, you know, the, this idea of sort of getting AI to be baked into the fabric. Um, one of the challenges here, and there's so many, is that to your point, we need to be able to show some momentum, right? And so yep. sometimes that's like the, the shiny demo or, or whatever. And some of those turned out to be fluky and, and what have you, but we've got to be able to build momentum. So we want sort of an initial project that'll, that'll get some confidence and get leadership to say, okay, I'll give yep. you some more dollars. Um, and so that kind of a project can be good because it's what we need to operate in the cultures that we need to operate in. But often it's it's done without any awareness as to a broader roadmap of where we're going. So we have if, if people Google um, uh, enterprise AI roadmap emerge, just E-M-E-R-J, there's a graphic of this, uh, which which we beat the war drum on this every single day here at Emerge. But basically thinking about not just the initial projects we can do. Oh, cool. Here's a little bit of efficiency we can squeak. Here's a little bit of a, of a paperwork flow we can automate, whatever. Or here's a dashboard we can augment to be predictive. Great. The question is, what capabilities does that build in terms of our internal skills and our data infra? And what capability does it build towards that's in line with our digital transformation vision? So when we think about where we're going to be in five or 10 years, is AI and data waking up at all part of what we want to turn into. If the North Star of what we want to become, it doesn't have to be defined by AI. So mm. I'm not in the camp, and I don't think anybody with a brain is of the camp that we should look at AI and say, how do I rethink everything I do? That I, That's it's pretty ridiculous. Order. However, however, yeah. we, sh we should ask, where could it be a conduit to us serving clients winning market share? Yeah. And, if, and if it's part of that vision, now we can build, we can start with those popcorn projects you and I just talked about, but I don't call them popcorn projects. Popcorn projects are randomly selected. They have no future. They're going to be a kludge. They're going to die in their little spun up AWS thing, and they're going to croak right there. That's where they're going to end. Um, a, a, a conscious project is one that is headed towards that North Star that we just articulated. Yep. Um, it's, in, it's, in, in, it's implicit purpose is to not just unlock the near-term ROI that it will unlock, but to build a bit of capability for data infra and for skills and to work explicitly towards a higher level of capability. Maybe it's going from predicting inventory in this one warehouse to a greater transparency on all of, all of uh, our predictability. Maybe it's on, maybe it's moving from automating certain customer service processes to uh, automating much, much broader capabilities. But the question is, are we building capability and building to higher level use cases in line with a, with a, with a vision that's somewhat informed? And the fact of the matter is, Ganesh, it's going to take a very long time until that's the norm in the enterprise. We definitely have some ideas about what's going to get us there, but we're a long way from home right now in terms of getting there. I, I, I agree. I think, you know, the other thing that you mentioned, which I think is worth noting, is uh, capacity and capability development, right? I think one thing we've learned over the last five, six years is there used to be a time, you can't buy AI. You can't just, just buy AI and then say, oh, yeah, I have AI now as a coordination is going to make a difference. But since it's a, such a compounding thing, right, you actually are investing in an infrastructure, people, talent, systems, and then you have to continuously, it's unlike traditional software entities, you can't just buy an AI and forget about it. It's constantly yeah. evolving, it's almost like has life to itself. So it is an organizational and a technical capability you have to develop and in-house in and build out that capability over a long period of time. So that's where that true North Star of what are you trying to get to really comes handy. Yeah. So you can align even those popcorn projects towards getting that to that path. Right? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Awesome, awesome. So 
ROI, or I, I like to call it. Yeah. I had uh, Tom Davenport on the uh, show um, a few weeks ago, and he was talking about this. Like I call it, um, he's actually got a book book coming out, um, and he calls it um, return return on AI, return on AI investments, yeah, or ROI, yeah, yeah. ROI, AI, as the play on words. Yeah. So, where do you see how are organizations are they seeing ROI number one today? And if they're seeing, where are they seeing that ROI today? Because if it's popcorn projects, is that really, you know, game-changing ROI at all? And then third part of that question is going to be around, like, do you see a, a spread of that ROI across multiple industries and uh, sectors as being very widely different, right? Yeah, um, so great question here. Uh, look, there is certainly some evidence of, of tangible return on investment for certain AI deployments. I mean, quite obviously, there's vendors now, everything used to be a press release even four years ago. Um, now, <laughs> there's enough embedded success stories where, where you know we've got some real results to be able to show from some of these things. Um, most of what vendors have learned to get there, so I'm, I'm going to take a pretty big picture view on ROI with you right now. Um, most of what vendors have learned to get there and enterprises have learned in terms of adopting it and getting there. Um, is that their narrow problems are really where, where AI has been able to sort of add value. So vendors initially thought when they went out, this is you know even six years ago, man, there's a whole new way to use this healthcare data, use this marketing data, use this whatever, and we could, we could totally improve the way this operation works or this process works. Nobody wants to transform anything now uh, because they've realized that the, the less workflow change, the better. The less pipes we have to plug into to train our AI, the better. Now, we talked about this a ton when COVID first struck, that that was going to be the general trend. Probably was the trend already, but it, it's certainly the trend now. It's that companies have realized in order to gain traction, get real adoption, use the interface somebody's already using, use the, you know, the, the buttons and the workflows they're already using, find a way to layer in your value without really touching or transforming the core process. Now, I'm not critiquing that. Everybody's got to make their dollar. And at the end of the day, a lot of enterprises are really only ready for that. So we're kind of meeting in the middle here. Vendors really had these grand aspirations. Companies who are totally not ready for it, I think maybe had grand aspirations with no technical competence. Um, and now they've met in the middle of, okay, what are the limited number of datas? What's the way I can augment this little this little iPad that your, your manufacturing person uses every day and give it a yeah. little bit of like this, this uh, augmentation and boom, that's that. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So surface level is where we've been able to see ROI. Um, much more deep and robust change has been rare. Not impossible, but, but much more rare uh, to see change. Now, part of the challenge here is the following, Ganesh. Part of the challenge is how are we measuring return on investment? Now, this is a monstrous topic. And, and we have, I, I mean, probably if I had the time, I'd write a book about it. But I, I certainly, I don't know. I, it'll, ne it'll probably never happen. But um, but the, the the general idea is this: we have a kind of a, a Trinity model for AI ROI. So it, you know, emerge AI ROI or whatever. It's it's online. Very very simple graphic. The simplest graphic that we probably have. Um, we wish so. Right now, AI is measured in terms of um some form of measurable return. Which, by the way, we don't argue against. That's a great thing. Who wants to spend money on technology and have no measurement of return? So we're looking for generally financial. We want to see revenue go up. We want to see, uh, 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 go down. Uh, you know, costs yeah. go down or whatever. Um, potentially, so that there's fuzzier versions of measurable ROI, by the way. Risk reduction is often quite fuzzy, but 
it's like pseudo measurable for some people, you know, regulatory risk and things along yeah. these lines. Um, another thing is, is customer experience, uh, sort of, you know, scores from, from customers, et cetera. There's ways to, to, to measure that, even if it doesn't immediately tie to revenue, like churn would be really a revenue thing, but customer yeah. experience scores would be less of that. So yeah. sometimes it's those things. Mostly it's going to tie to money and that's fine and great and dandy. Here's the problem. There's two other really important elements of ROI that are almost entirely just not considered in the enterprise. And there's a thousand ways to describe it. So when I think about what have we learned from the podcast by having a thousand episodes, um, some of the most piercingly insightful things are that there's 50 million ways to say exactly what I'm going to say. And I, I actually think this is quite a dense way of framing. I'm not proud of everything that, that we've ever said or written, but I actually think this is quite useful for enterprise folks. Sure. Is that there's measurable ROI. Yep. Then there is strategic ROI. And there is capability ROI. So let me explain what I mean. Measurable ROI is what everybody already understands. Okay, when am I going to make my money back? Measurable ROI. Fine. I don't need to explain it. The next one, um, strategic ROI. Here's the question. Is this project going to bring us closer to our um, uh, three to five year goals or that, that grand strategy vision? Or is it supporting one of our key technology thrusts that's helping us to go in that direction? Again, we talked about the North Star. Is yep. it in any way on the road to the North Star? In any way? Is it is it supporting a core initiative? Yay or nay? And the answer should be yay. Um, the third thing is capability ROI. So capability ROI, which is absolutely, without a doubt, the neglected of the three. Now, strategy is straggling. Strategy is hardly getting fed any food at all. Strategy is like on its last legs. Nobody cares about strategy. Capability doesn't even exist. Go ahead. Before you go into capability on the strategy, yeah. Thing, yeah. how do you measure that? It's a yay or nay. Is it works well, or not? You're, you're right. You're right. You're right. So, so um, yay or nay is is a very rough proxy for this. And there's certainly deeper frameworks that we could go into for sure. for being able to come up with stronger proxies. The basic idea is the following: um, if we look at where we're going as a company at at a high level, um, is the is this a project that is supporting us becoming what we want to become? Now that is fuzzy, yeah. but does if, if, if our SMEs agree on that, if our uh, leadership, the people cutting the checks agree on that, here's what happens. Um, well, two things. Number one, we're building something that has the possibility of not being a popcorn project because it can grow. It can turn into something yeah. meaningful. Yeah. Um, no, so number two, um, we, we, can, we can push through the inevitable hurdles of AI projects. You know all of them. I'm not even going to list them all. Right? Yeah. The, oh, it's going to take us 18 months to clean the data. Uh, okay, most projects are going to die right there. But if they're important enough and they actually tie to strategy, if we wanted to make our money back in six months, nobody's going to deal with, with messy data. But if this ties to something that's critical for how the hell we're going to transform and we can't do it with IT, we might still support it, Kanesh. We might still support it. So the survivability of worthy projects depends on at least some tie to strategic ROI. Okay. You're right to say it's and, it's not measurable. And you can yeah, go ahead. But you can quantify that too, right? I mean, now when you when you're explaining it that way, right? Let's say, for example, it takes you, you know, uh, 68 months to get to your destination of that final place of where that strategy is going to lead you to. Well, using this piece of technology in this particular project, you're accelerating that, getting down to 48 months, right? That's still, you can kind of turn that into a measurable ROI if you really want to, but focus on the strategic goal, right? Yep. Yeah. The, the, the simple rule of thumb, even before we get into measurement frameworks, which we, we could dive into a little bit, the simple rule of thumb is list the things that are absolutely most important, your, your key thrusts, your key technology investments, the key things you need to level up to become what you need to become. Literally, don't even write 10, write four of them. Does it have to do with any of those four? Oh, if not, we probably shouldn't do it. 
Like it, it, that's actually a very clean rule of thumb. Now, would I say that, that everybody should make $10 million decisions based on that? No, but is it a really strong rule of thumb? Yes, because if we have no strategic impetus behind the project, as soon as we hit hurdles, we're not gonna continue our investment. Um, so strategy is, is highly neglected. We're thinking about AI like we're just sprinkling it on top. We're building all these, these um, technical debt piles here and there yep. with AI, and we're ignoring strategy. Um, Talk about, let me just briefly get into capability if you don't mind. Yep. So we have a, uh, the critical capabilities of AI emerge, again, Googleable thing, but we have a framework around what AI maturity is. Here's capability in a nutshell. Capability is um, the skills. So this is technical skills and the non-technical skills of AI adoption. So people stuff. Um, culture. So being willing to iterate, being willing to collaborate uh, cross-functionally, et cetera. Um, and it's also uh, core infra and resources. The state of our of our data intake process, the state of our data infrastructure, uh, the state of our uh, ML and IT ops working together, things like that. So we've got kind of our resources, we've got culture, we've got skills. That's what capability is. It is the undergirding AI maturity that's going to support any project. Um, if we don't think about, I mentioned, you know, and the ROI or the the roadmap graphic shows this. An initial project should support a measurable ROI, and it should build some slightly higher level of capability that allows us to get to another potential measurable yeah. level of ROI that builds towards that that um, North Star. If we don't consider the value of capability ROI, then we're even less likely to push through the inevitable hubbub uh, of, of bringing AI to life. And I say this a hundred times and I'll say it a hundred more. Um, yes, I think any investment, we should stack it as many chips behind it as we can to make sure that that thing delivers some kind of a return we can all be proud of. Let's absolutely do that. However, Let's remember that in our first 10 to 20 projects, um, if they're all a small win, that's situation one. Let's imagine situation two where 25%, 35% of them are small wins, but yeah. our but our SMEs, our SMEs are smarter in terms of identifying AI and being able to work with data scientists. Our data scientists have become deeply embedded in subject matter expert expertise stuff. Our, our data infrastructure has started to wake up. If we've been able to shake capability ROI and AI maturity up, that is the soil that we're going to grow in. So let's yeah. not ignore measurable ROI, but let's also remember the company that has 10 small wins and zero learning, zero maturity, and the company with three small wins and leadership, SMEs, and data infra are at a higher level than they were before. This company is winning the coming five years. And so unless we think about how will this project level up our core uh, data uh, AI maturity, we're really missing um, some of the, the important elements of the boat here. So we would wish that enterprises would consider some of those factors in addition to measurable ROI. No, and you know, in fact, it's a, such, a, um, such a simple concept, but such a, a powerful concept too. I want to call out that that capability ROI. And the last example you gave, if you're an organization that has got three small wins, but you measurably improve your capability and you're going closer to your strategy, your actual ROI for AI is actually much higher than somebody who's got 10 yeah. small popcorn projects. They've actually been very good, but they yes. bought all those projects from the vendors, didn't bring any 100%. They didn't build any capability. Yep. So, so yep. it's interesting, you know, because one of the things that I noticed is a lot of, a lot of, organizations that give up on AI too soon because they fail to measure the success or ROI across a broader lens like this, right? They yep. go in and say, yep. oh, did my uh, you know retention rate for customers go up? And the answer is, yeah, kind of, like 2%. I'm like, 
then AI is not worth it. They just give up and say, that's it's not it. Added. That's it. Yep. Right. You're right. And, and I think this provides a very, I, I love that framework and, and I'm going to look that up and put it in the show notes too, right? That whole thing sure, sure. emerged uh, AI framework, ROI framework. That's awesome. So um, we're running out of time too. So a couple of other things that's that right. I want to touch fine. up, uh, touch yeah, upon yeah, let's and, do it. and get into, right? One is your, uh, your podcast. Tell us about your podcast. I mean, you've been, it's one sure. of the longest running podcasts in AI, right? So tell me more it's and tell around, me about the podcast around. itself. Where can people find it? And then what did you learn yeah. you know, talking to all these great people? Uh, oh, man, so many things. So, uh, well, I, I uh, uh, the, the podcast is called the AI and Business Podcast. So very easy to find Apple, Spotify, the whole nine yards. It has been around for now over eight years, which is an awfully long time. A little scary to think about, to be honest. There, there was almost not much to talk about in the early episodes because it was all <laughs> hypothetical, but... Um, uh, and, and our focus really in the AI and business podcast is covering use cases, covering trends, and really covering the minutia of adoption. So we do a lot to crack into. We don't necessarily appeal to the people that want to learn to write Python, but we do appeal to the people who need to do the messy work of getting culture to shift and getting the right projects to actually come into being. So ROI adoption strategy is the hardcore focus, and we do that through trends and use cases across industries. Everybody from global head of AI at Raytheon, IBM, core machine learning at Facebook, head of core machine learning at Facebook, all the way down to interesting startups maybe you haven't heard of, but they might still be worth a billion dollars and they're doing really cool things. Um, so that that's the range that we cover, but it really is a, a business person focus. Um, man, in terms of in terms of what I've learned over the years doing that show, I, I could try to, you're making me, this is a tough question. I could think about what are some of the bigger categories of ahas that I've had and try to be very quick with them if yeah, I could? Please, you know, your uh, choice, oh, your answer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, geez. Well, um, I will say I've learned a lot. More importantly, I've met many, many brilliant people. And if, if we're ever called upon to give a keynote, I say it all the time. It's not because, you know, I'm Captain Smarty Pants here. It's because we've heard from so many great and brilliant people over the years. But when I think about... Um, really big insights. One big insight that I think is important for our specific audience, who's very unlikely to be writing the Python, but they're very likely to be in the strategy room and the yeah. procurement process, um, is to understand just how tactful the process of adopting AI really needs to be. So selling and buying AI needs to be. Here's what I mean by that. On the one extreme, we have promising measurable ROI. Don't talk about strategy. Don't talk about capability because the buyer doesn't know what the hell they are anyway when it comes to AI, AI. So just talk about measurable and promise a lot and show some cool demos. And that's that. And often still to this day, you can't necessarily have a whiz bang demo. People aren't going to buy the buzzword anymore. Thank God we're past that phase, Ganesh, but they're not going to just buy the buzzword. But if you promise enough near-term ROI and you make it sound like it's IT, uh, you're like, oh, you yeah, just plug it in and blah, blah. Um, sometimes you can get the first check cut. And yep. so that there's a real there's a real thing to that. Oh my God, I finally pushed through this project. Wow. So as a vendor, there's a wow to that. As a as an internal leader, there's a wow to that. But there's a downside. And the downside is we don't have expectations aligned and we haven't set this project up to win. So the tightrope that we're always walking is between the, the measurable ROI that everybody knows and understands and setting the realistic expectations of, but seriously, guys how are we going to measure success here and, and what's what's success really going to mean? And also what is this project really going to require? So being that, the opposite of, of um, over-promising near-term ROI yeah. is you, you get the yes and then expectations are wrecked and everybody's surprised when you have to clean the data for six months and, bump up and, the, and the, the project is toast. The polar opposite, which is also terrible, by the way, is going in there talking about 
the paradigm shifts and how data is going to wake up. And you're not even really talking about a use case, but you're talking about, we need to invest in new data infrastructure. And it's all about foundation and no near-term project. Of course, we can't do that either. We need to find a middle ground where we take wherever the person is that we're selling to. We take where they are. Maybe they're at like a zero on AI maturity or a one out of five. And we need to nudge them one or two notches forward. We're, never, we're not going to rip them all the way to, to sort of a, a big picture perspective. We need to take them one or two notches forward and set set a foundation here so that they know some of the troubles that are going to come and the challenges, but also how those challenges are inevitable to hit our strategic goals and to build capabilities that are going to make us strong. It, we need to be frank about enough of that for the project to have a chance to sink in. And it's yeah. surprising how many projects still lie in the first extreme. So one of the big insights is that there's a lot of dance to the value of this stuff is in the tactful framing and decision-making um, that, that really does happen between leaders in an organization. So in every industry, this, this stuff has come up to the yes. point where we talk a lot about it because it's so important. No, no, it's it's so true. I think, you know, in fact, one thing uh, we learned early on, well, we were trying to get these big brands um, get into AI like five, six years ago, was this thing about the, the art of storytelling and how do you communicate value? How do you communicate this thing and prepare them to actually be able yeah. to be tactful about it, have the context around it. And really paint a picture. I mean, I went a large healthcare organization. We actually build them a video. They didn't ask for it, just so that they can actually showcase to their board and say, like, this is a future we can help get to. But to, for making that happen, here is where we need to start. Here are the foundational capabilities we need to go build. Right. So, but I think you know, you, you're exactly right. I think we're we're seeing that all over. You know, a lot of these things get lost or just falls flat just because people can't communicate the comprehensive, the value proposition of doing something that they're doing, right? Um, yeah. I mean, look, the getting the algorithms right, the data right, there's so many wonderful things we need to think about, but um, so much of the rubber hitting the road, the check getting cut on the wrong project or the right project is who's in the room being how honest and framing things in what way. <laughs> um, and when those dollars start rolling, I don't even care how many great data scientists you have. You're working on the wrong damn thing. So AI I, I agree with help, you in that respect. AI, AI cannot help corporate politics yet. <laughs> no, so nope, no. We'll actually we, go through that first. <laughs> yeah, we're not there yet. We're not there yet. Yeah. All right. Well, what else? What else did you actually find? What other um, insight comes to mind? Man, um, you know, uh, well, another another kind of critical trend that I hinted on slightly here was that companies that have succeeded in this first wave, well, all right, this is a big picture insight. I haven't even written the full article on this yet, but I'll, I'll give it to you. So th this is this is big. And th this is over the last three, four years, actually, is that um, most companies felt like they were going to come in vendor companies. So I'm talking about an insight from the vendor perspective, but this is sure. very relevant for buyers as well. Vendors came in and they were thinking, cool, we're going to access all these different bits of data in, let's say they're working in um, uh, marketing, in marketing, or all these different bits of data in inventory management and manufacturing. We're going to integrate this stuff. We're going to provide kind of a suite of different capabilities. We're going to make manufacturing smarter, make marketing smarter. What's actually happened is there's kind of been two paths. And this is incredibly important to understand in terms of who you work with uh, and, and, and sort of how you're going to engage with them. Some companies have gone the route of, so they've all realized, Ganesh, that, and I'm sure you did too, that the white glove, heavy lifting, educative work that leads up to an AI sale is 
insanely intense. It's very, very intense, and it does not guarantee success. Now, somebody's got to do it, so God bless you guys out there. I'm doing the easy part, right? I'm just talking about it on a show. I don't have to sit there with an executive for six hours and be like, but we don't have the data for that, boss. You know, like I don't have to do, I, you know, I, I do sometimes in our strategy work, but I don't have to be there for six hours yep, um, sure. So, uh, or, or for six months. So um, that work is incredibly hard. So there's two paths you can take. And most people take path A. Path A is, okay, we cannot have onboarding and educating be this complex. We need to find a workflow that's understandable and digestible not a capability set, a set, a workflow or two or three that are capable and that are digestible, a limited number of data pipes that we can hook up to. Yep. And we need to be, we need to be able to work within the workflows that they're in. I'm not giving these people new tech. I'm not going to have them log into a new yep. cloud solution. I'm not doing that. We're, we're, we're just going to be as close to SaaS as we can be. We think of this as kind of AI SaaS where yep. um, we want to make this SaaS like we want to deliver on the SaaS promise of you pay us, you get the result, you don't deal with the complexity, but we get real narrow when we play SaaS and we get real surface level when we play SaaS. So it's fine. There's nothing wrong with it, but that's a path, okay? We saw everybody come in through the same pipe. The same pipe was a transformative pipe, a whole department, a whole capability category. Man, we're going to transform this stuff. And most of them went, geez, I'm not going to do this level of white glove. If it takes me six months to educate leadership and, and get the sale, and it takes another six months to educate them that, yes, you need to keep the algorithm alive. Um, we're not going to break even on these things, so we're not doing this. A lot of companies learn that. So they started going more SaaS. Easier onboarding, smaller beachheads. That was a big path. Second path is the more platform side. Yep. So the platform side is, um, now, few companies have done this well, but some companies have, where they say, we do have a capability that's more broad. Um, we actually do have a suite that we think we can compete with the SageMakers and other folks. Maybe not exactly on what sure. SageMaker does, but but a platform-like thing where, yep. where we have a wider capability category. We're going to find a set of beachheads, so sort of specific problems that we can solve, and then we're going to be able to land and expand. Those yep. companies have needed to raise a lot of money to build core tech and yep. a lot of money to, to sell these lost leader projects, and they've had to have a lot of talented people to figure out how to take this small project and turn it into expansion of capability, expansion of strategy, and expansion of, of reliance on their tech. So there's a road where you let go of that. You say, I'm done with the white glove. I'm done with it. We're not doing this anymore. I wanted a SaaS company when I started this thing. I don't want a consulting company. We go one, one route. Um, few companies will go the platform route. What this means for um, enterprise buyers is that you've got to understand when you're working with these AI SaaS guys, you're not really building capability. You're, you're not quite, in many cases, necessarily making an investment in AI. It's not a bad thing. It doesn't make you bad, but you can't go to bed at night saying, oh, our data is in a better place. We're more capable with AI. Um, you know, it, it's, but, but a lot of companies do sort of feel that way. So we've seen a divergence. We've seen most companies go narrow, narrow, narrow. And now we see enterprises who really do need to understand, guys, yes, we can work with these, with these surface solutions. And some of them are wonderful, but we've also still got to focus on capability. Yeah, no, you know, in fact, um, and I haven't, you know, announced this publicly and stuff yet. So we're building a new health healthcare company, and one of the things that when we started talking to all of the healthcare institutions across the across the world and across the the different sub industries and sub domains, it's very evident, right? It was just this one um, CIO of a, uh, of a large payer telling me it was very uh, episodic of what actually happens across the industry, right? The last five six years, I'm like. If one more company comes to me and say they are a telehealth for a narrow sliver of, you know, mental health, 
right? And yeah. that's all I do. And like, I don't know what to do with them because now I have an island of 50,000 different capabilities with no way of pulling it all together. And especially in a play with like data, like you said, you know, it's about, it's the compounding effect that you get when you actually start doing and building capabilities rather than just solving that one narrow operationally ROI problem. And then you take, go to the next one, go to the next one. You look around and say, I just have 15 different SaaS tools right now or 20 different SaaS tools. I'm doing yep. 20 different things with no way to capitalize and compound on it to build something better. Right. So it's a, yeah. it's a very, um, it's, it's, it's a, it's a grave insight, unfortunately. Right. It's one of those things where I don't know which land is going to win because the other side, like you said, like companies have to raise a lot of money to build that platform. That's also not right. Yeah. Right. And so, so you just have to figure out, I think the, we believe there is a better way. I mean, just you know, a, a hybrid of the two approaches, where you go and sure. still focus on the narrow thing, but then build for the capability. You know, from a you know investment perspective, how you build for a broader set of capabilities, but focus on or abstract the value realization side to the capability side, right? If you will, right? Um, we can talk about that later. I, I have a, a sure, ton sure. of ideas <laughs> in that front too, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, this is awesome. Then I, I think. Daniel, we've run out of time quite a by quite over, but it was a fascinating discussion. Where can the listeners and viewers find you on the internet? Where can they find you? Sure. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm just Dan Fagella on LinkedIn or Twitter, so always sharing our research there. But the, the podcast, which I, I think if they're listeners would probably have an interest in, is just the AI and Business podcast. So we've yeah. got some great episodes with uh, heads of AI at some fantastic enterprises, some great startups coming up. And then the website is just Emerge, or the newsletter is just emerge.com slash N1. So N like newsletter and then the number one, emerj.com slash N1. But otherwise, AI and business podcast, those are the, the quick ways to find me. And I'm, I'm glad you were able to have me here, Ganesh. This has been a lot of fun. This was a lot of fun. Thank you for taking the time today. Of course, brother. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. If you did, I encourage you to do three things. Number one, share with your friends and family. If someone else can learn from this, get inspired and take action, they need to. Number two, subscribe so you do not miss a single episode. You can do it at your favorite podcast location or at youtube.com. Number three, let me know if you have any questions, comments, or ideas for me or my guests. And check out storiesinai.com to access show notes and more resources. Thank you for listening. See you next time.